this morning, once again, we are looking at the, the priority and the importance of prayer. And as you know, we are looking at Matthew chapter 6 uh, at, the, at the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples and by extension teaches us as we um, look at this subject, trusting your Father's heart. And this is part two of, of, the, of the series, Trusting Your Father's Heart. Let's look at Matthew uh, chapter 6, and I'm going to read verses 7 and 8 along with uh, the prayer, just to get the context of what is being said here. Matthew chapter 6, verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. As I said this morning, we want to look at just the first petition, the preface and first petition, Our Father in Heaven, Hallowed Be Your Name. And we want to see that as it uh, sprang from the context of Jesus talking about how pagans pray and how we are not to pray like them. Someone once said, if God answered all of your prayers, would the world look different, or just your life? That's an interesting statement, because the Lord's Prayer really focuses on what God is doing in the world through the church. Not just your personal life, but your life as it is a part of the larger body of Christ. This prayer um, uses the, uh, the plural form of the possessive pronoun, our. It doesn't start with my father or my concerns, but our father and the concerns of the whole body of Jesus Christ. And we'll talk about that, Lord willing, in a minute, but this, this whole attitude flows out of um, a contrast with the way pagans pray. And pagans are often, uh, as, as unbelievers are, when they pray, very self-centered and self-reliant. Their focus is on themselves their efforts, their words, their works, not on God or his word and his works. Pagans, as it says in verse 7, they believe in themselves. 
and their formulas, their techniques, um, they believe that it's their many words, it's their vain repetitions, as the old King James said. That's why God's going to hear them. They have this faith in their own works. There's this faith in their own uh, efforts. They believe uh, the deity is either indifferent or disinterested in them and their plight, and, and he must be manipulated or perhaps convinced uh, to hear their case. They lack faith in the true God. You, however, uh, like Jesus says in verse 8, you are not to pray that way. Um, your Father knows what you need before you even ask Him. You and your needs are already on your Father's heart and mind. He does not need you to beg or prove yourself to Him. You don't need to wear Him down or convince Him to care. He cares for you. He cares for your circumstances better and more than you do. But you are called to have faith, faith in, in your Father's loving heart, not your hard work. He is not resistant to his children when they humble themselves and come to him and pray. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. That's what the psalmist said in Psalm 84. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And this, this great promise, of course, reminds us of the need for truly being upright, sanctified in our, our living, righteous by faith, and living in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ living in response to that grace. The grace of God, as you know, not only saves us, but it teaches us to live righteously before God. The grace of God that saves us in Jesus Christ, it orients the way that we live, the way that we walk. You see that in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. And so repentance, faith, and holiness go hand in hand with, with your prayers being heard and answered from on high. Listen to what the psalmist said in Psalm 66, verse 16 and following. It says, Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. You see the psalmist here, he says, you know, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord wouldn't have listened to him. You may recall, for example, how Jacob pleaded with the Lord in the book of Genesis and how he pleaded with the Lord and refused to stop pleading and, and he would not let 
the Lord go until God blessed him. But then the Lord asked him his name. And Jacob, as you know, means he cheats or deceiver. He who grabs the heel. Jacob disguised himself, you remember, as Esau, when he went to his father, his earthly father, and he lied about who he was. He said, I'm Esau. And he was expressly asked, are you Esau? And he says, yes, I am. He begged his earthly father for the blessing, and he got it by cheating. But you can't cheat with God. And when Jacob wrestled with God for the blessing, God asked him, what's your name? And you see the connection that God is drawing in Jacob's life. He's saying, what's your name? Who are you? And he had to admit he couldn't say Esau at that point because God knew who he was and he knew who he was and he had to admit, my name's Jacob. My name is, he cheats. I'm a little deceiver. And in, in naming himself, in, in, in expressly saying what his name was, he highlighted his character as a cheater, and, and God immediately said to him, no longer is your name Jacob, he cheats, your name is Israel, because you have strived with God and man, and you have prevailed, because he believed in God for the blessing. He wasn't scared to admit the truth about himself and be transparent before God, and God blessed him. Don't you find that your confidence before God in prayer is somehow tied to your transparency regarding your sin? God tells the prophet Ezekiel, when you approach God with idols in your heart, he will, he will speak with you about your idols. He will call you to repent, but here's why. It says in Ezekiel 14, you read it in verses 4 and 5, here's why he does it. Here's why he, he deals with you when you come to God with idols in your heart and you're not talking to him about those idols. He's going to talk to you about your idols, and this is why he does that, is so that he may lay hold of your heart. Who can forget if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. When Jesus speaks in Matthew 6 on prayer, he is speaking to submitted students, to his disciples who have come to him in order to follow him. You who believe in Jesus and have received him alone have the right to be called children of God. You alone have the right, you who believe in Jesus, that is, you alone have the right to call God Father. God is our Father, and, and when, when your neediness overwhelms you, you must first realize your Father's love and care also overwhelms you. All of you who believe in Jesus are, are on his heart and on his mind. You are the apple of his eye. 
understand that in the midst of all of your needs, you're not alone. You're a member of the body of Christ. You are, you are a member of the people of God. You're part of the corporate body, and you're not alone. And so Jesus teaches us uh, with that possessive pronoun, that plural possessive pronoun, that we are not to enter into God's presence simply thinking about ourselves. And, and Jesus also mentions this because corporate prayer is a part and parcel of the lifeblood of the church. We are called to pray corporately. We have corporate prayer at our church on Thursday. And it's, it's time well spent to set aside a, an hour of your time or half an hour, whatever you can do, to get with the body of Christ and to pray corporately. That's the way God sees prayer happening in the body of Christ most, in, in the most foremost way is, is a corporate dynamic. It's a corporate uh, calling upon the name of the Lord. Our Father, um, we are taught to pray. As we said before, it's not my Father. It's not me, myself, and my personal needs. It's, it's our Father, and it's the needs that are in the body of Christ. We're to come together and bear one another's burdens to the throne of grace. We approach God as brothers and sisters of one another and as children of God. Together we do this. We who believe in Jesus are united with Christ and are of one spirit with Christ. Together we are the bride of Christ. And this is not true of Muslims. It's not true of Buddhists. It's not true of Hindus. Muslims in particular, all the praying they do at Ramadan and all of that, um, they're not part of the body of Christ. They don't know God as Father. There's only one way to know God as Father, and it's only through Jesus Christ as He is revealed in the Holy Scriptures. So sometimes we like to think about the religious community as brothers and sisters, but, but Muslims are not our brothers. Hindus are not our brothers. Not in, not in the spiritual sense, not in the sense that which God has placed us in the body of Christ as his children and as brothers and sisters of one another in Christ. And uh, although God has created all of us, uh, that does not make God the, the father of everyone as he is the father of believers in Jesus Christ. There is a special dynamic, there's a special reality that has taken place that is um, true of followers of Jesus Christ that is not true of other uh, religions. There is a relationship with God that does not exist with other uh, groups who claim to have faith in God. This prayer teaches us that prayer is has more to do um, with than you and your personal needs and private world. Our life is in Christ within the context of the body of Christ. The rest of the preface 
our Father in heaven highlights both the intimacy we have with our Father and his transcendent majesty. He is our Father, and yet he is in heaven. He is above all others and above everything, and he reigns over everyone and reigns over everything. And from this prayer, we learn that our Father provides, he pardons, he pilots, he leads, he protects us. We see that in the the, the latter petitions. But before these truths are ever addressed, we are called to think of his name, the Father's name. A name is more than a mere label. It outlines the very being of God. And the fact that Jesus teaches us to pray our Father immediately says to think about yourself as sons and daughters, to think about yourselves as children of the Father. And, and as we said, this is only true of those who have believed in and received Jesus Christ, as it says in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Those who believe in Jesus and have received him have the right to be called children of God who are born not of bloods, not of natural descent, not of, the, not of the will of the flesh, and not of the will of man. It's not for your performance, and no one else can make you a child of God. Only God can make you his child by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. The name of God is seen here as Father, our Father. At that all of the other names of God that He gives of Himself, all of the revelation, in some sense is summed up with the name Father. Everything that's revealed about God says something about His 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 fatherhood. That, that is the particular name it's not limited to Father, obviously, but that's the particular name Jesus chooses to highlight in the beginning of this prayer, is that God is our Father. All of creation, and especially you, followers of Jesus Christ, you find your life, your meaning, your purpose, your destiny, your name from God the Father. It's through your heavenly Father. Paul said it like this, I bow my knees, remember this in Ephesians chapter 3, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. His concern in this passage, as you know, is, is that you might be spiritually strong within by his Spirit that Jesus Christ might dwell and reign in your hearts through faith, that your relationships with others might be established in love, that you might know Jesus' love, multifaceted love, and be filled with the fullness of God. And that is his concern. His concerns are with your spiritual welfare, and that's the way this prayer in Matthew 6 begins. That's the priority that God gives. The first petition in this prayer is, Hallowed be your name. And this is both praise and petition. You are being taught to affirm and worship your Father because there is nothing and no one like him anywhere. 
He is worthy of constant praise. All that is true of him is good for you. The angels and four living creatures in heaven, they never stop worshiping your father and the lamb. And God did not send a savior for them. And Jesus didn't die for them. And yet they can't stop worshiping him. They're not battery powered. They're in his presence, and they see how worthy he is of that kind of constant worship. And so how much more should we be worshiping our Father in heaven? How much more should we be worshiping the one who sent his Son to die for our sin and redeem us? He alone is holy. And, and names like Emmanuel... God with us, Savior, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Lord. These names reveal God's character. And, and, and these are the names that are given to Jesus. Because Jesus, more than anyone, more than anything, reveals God perfectly. He's the bread of life. He's the light of the world. He's the good shepherd. He's the resurrection and the life, the true vine, so much more. And these things, as we said, are summed up in this name, Father, because all of these things that were mentioned demonstrate the goodness of a father coming from heaven down to us. Uh, Mary McGarrity said, God is like a Coca-Cola. He's the real thing. Well, I hope you all know that God isn't really like soda. Um, there's a lot of caffeine and Coca-Cola and a lot of sugar, and the amounts there are probably, neither one of them are probably good for you. But all of God is good for you. And then the petition Hallowed be your name also points to a desire, not just it's not just high praise to God. Let your name be worshipped, let your name be praised. There's none like you. But it's also a a desire that you're to have, a heartfelt petition from you, the true children of God. When you pray this, you are asking that in your life, in your heart, in your life, in the life of others who believe, in the life of others in the world who don't believe, that, that your Father's name would be acknowledged, revered, feared, made famous, and glorified above all things. You know, the Bible says that we, we tremble at the Word of God. Um, that's, that's one of the things that pleases God, is a humble, a contrite heart in those who, who tremble at his word. And um, God's name is exalted, just like God's word is exalted. Your, your father's name needs to be acknowledged, revered, and feared made famous and glorified in this world. David said, For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. God's name is Jealous. That's an interesting name. 
but that's one of God's names. He is jealous because he, is, he has a passion about being known accurately, known truly, known all over the world as the only God. God says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. How does God set apart his name? That's the question whose answer you should be contemplating. Isaiah teaches that God's people will sanctify his name in Isaiah 29, 23. You're the ones who set God's name apart. Now, sanctify means make holy, and it, it, you can't make God's name holy. God's name is already holy, holy, holy. But, but what it means is that it would be held as holy. It would be revered that people would think twice before they speak God's name. And when they speak it, they would speak it with joy and gladness because of who he is and what he has accomplished in his Son by his Spirit for his glory, for your good, and for your salvation. When God saved his people from Egypt, it was to make a name for himself through their lives and their lifestyle. Paul said of Israel, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Paul says of the church, wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. And of course, what Paul is saying both in these passages to Israel in Romans 2, as well as to the church in 1 Corinthians 15, is that our lifestyle says something about the name of God. It says something about who he is and what type of being he is. People look at our lives and they, they make a judgment about God. They evaluate what God is like based on how you live your life. Many um, who should know God's name don't. Or worse, his name is not taken seriously. It's used as a curse word by so many. Or as a flippant statement in Taylor Swift's empty-headed song, Blank Space, I think the blank space in that song was between her ears. Christopher Hitchens wrote a book, God is Not Great. I wonder how much of that was him. Obviously, a big part of it was him. But yet, I wonder how much of that was a reaction to the church failing to walk in holiness. God's name is blasphemed among the unbeliever. There is a covenant expectation that with our mouths and with our manner of life, God's name, his being, would be made famous and shown to be sacred, revered, glorious, high, and lifted up, exalted. That's the way our lives are supposed to magnify the name of the Lord. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, the psalmist said, and let us exalt his name together. And if you continue to read that psalm, it says he talks much about his life, about fearing the Lord, 
turning away from evil, and how that also magnifies the name of the Lord. Paul said, God's firm foundation stands bearing the seal. He said this in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19. God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. Now, that's one thing. God knows your name, right? We look at those books in Numbers and Numbers, those chapters rather, in Numbers and in Ezra and Chronicles, and we look at those lists of names and genealogies and Boy, reading all those names, sometimes we skip that, don't we? Yeah, well, you have to think about that chapter in context. That name actually stood for a person. And there's a book up in heaven, and it's got your name in it. Now, that's, that's a page that you'd like to read, wouldn't you? You'd like to read through those names and say, wow, there I am, I'm listed. That's what those chapters mean in Numbers, that, that those people were listed. God had named them by name. He had called them by name. And uh, God's, the Lord knows those who are his. And then it says, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. You see how that connection is made, that when we name his name, just naming God's name puts on us a responsibility to carry that name, to bear that name in a certain way. This passage calls us to pure and holy living that corresponds with God's thrice holy name. The psalmist asks, how can a young man keep his way pure? Is that a question that you even ask? Are you concerned about how you can keep your name pure, how you can keep, your, keep yourself pure. Jesus asked, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? See, we name the name Lord, Lord, but it, it requires being a servant of a Lord, being a slave of a Lord, being mastered by that Lord. The answer to both of these questions is summed up in what the psalmist affirms when he says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's what he says. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. And that happens when the word is stored up. Thy word have I stored up in my heart that I might not sin against you. To store up is to treasure, to ponder, to study, to hold sacred it is what Peter said of Jesus Christ, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone. The psalmist said to store up, to treasure God's word in your hearts. And Peter says to do the same with Jesus Christ. Jesus is the embodiment, as you know, of God's word. Someone once said, everything God has ever wanted to say to humanity he says in Jesus, do you treasure Jesus in your hearts? It is a life devoted to him and devoted to treasuring him within that gives reason to others to hope in him and to claim him as hallowed, sacred, holy. Jesus is the one who reveals the Father's name and all that the Father has ever revealed about himself. In John chapter 17, verse 26, remember we were 
studying John chapter 17. And in that last verse, Jesus says something very interesting. He says that he is going to reveal something to you. It says, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. And here's why. Here's, going to, here's the result of doing that. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Jesus says he's going to make the Father's name known so that the love of God might be in you, so that Jesus himself might dwell in you. He's going to make his Father known. And so it's that love of the Father, that grace of the Father, that mercy of the Father, the being of God the Father made known to you that stirs you in response and in gratitude to love and to live for Christ. Jesus saves. His name means he saves his people from their sins. It's more than a label. Emmanuel means God with us. He must be revered. Jesus must be treasured. He must be stored up. He must be hidden in your hearts if you are to walk holy and make God's name famous and exalted and revered among the nations. God makes his name holy by the work he does through his people. His name is already holy, remember, but he makes it held as such, believed as such, acknowledged as such by the work he does through you. Does purity concern you? Are you concerned about being pure, about being holy? And, and being that in response to what God has done through Jesus for you. You know, sometimes in Christianity, we exalt our sinfulness more than the salvation Jesus brings. We often glory in our sensitivity to our sins more than in the cross and power of Christ. We wear our ability to confess our sins like a badge of honor. Jesus' name is on you. You have been given a name better than sons and daughters. You have been given God's own everlasting name. God's triune name in baptism is placed on you. And he calls you not only to believe, but to obey by the Spirit in response to God and his grace in Christ out of gratitude. Our Father sent his Son to cleanse you, clothe you, fill you, sanctify you, send you, use you, glorify you, keep you from stumbling, and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy one day. Hallowed be his name. Let the world see Christ in you and you in Christ and learn to fear his holy name. That's how God is going to do it. We pray our Father in heaven corporately together as a body. That should be our concern as a body together. Recognizing that in Christ we are one. In Christ we are family. In Christ we are 
his body, his bride, spiritually bound to Jesus. He owns every part of us, and that's sacred. And we should be people who are seeking the hollowing of his name. The hollowing of his name. That, that people worldwide would reverence the name of God Almighty. And the Bible teaches us that one of the chief ways that that happens is when you walk in holiness, when you walk in righteousness, when you walk in unity and in peace with your brothers and sisters in the Lord, when that unity is there, when that holiness is there, and all of this is a grateful response to the grace of God revealed in Christ by the Spirit. We don't walk holy in our own strength. We don't walk holy by, by, our, by, by mere effort. We walk holy because God lives in us. We walk holy because Jesus has camped out inside of us. He has made us his temple. He has bought us with a price of his blood, and we are not our own. We belong to him, and we are bound to glorify him in our bodies. And so when we do, when we respond to grace in view of the mercies of God, when we offer ourselves to God as holy sacrifices, living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to him, when our lives are not conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds through the Spirit and through the Scripture, when we prove that good and acceptable perfect will of God, people give glory to our Father who is in heaven. People who don't know Him give glory to Him, our Father in heaven. They begin to reverence the name because they see the impact of this God in our life. May God's name be honored in our hearts, through our lives. Would you pray that? Would you regularly pray that for yourself, that God would work in you and in the church, in all of us, corporately? Because that's what this prayer calls for that we should pray that in our life as a corporate body that God would work in such a way that his character and his beauty and his, his traits would be reflected in our life as a church in such a way that people would begin to shudder at the reality of who God is, that they wouldn't go around writing books about how, in their view, he's not great but they would go around writing about how great God is, and we can see it in the body of Christ. We can see it in the way they live their lives. We can see it in how, how, how you talk and how you walk and how you relate to one another in love and in purity. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. God bless you.